Uh, Kim Marshall just shared a story, uh, something that happened at their, their home this morning. They were listening to last week's sermon um, uh, the, on the website. You know, it's posted on the website. And they were listening to the last week's sermon, and Sam was listening. And then he was like, are we going to church today? They're like, oh, no, we're going to church today. And then they were like, do you know who this is? And he goes, yeah, it's Master Aaron. <laughs> so, like, a Jedi or something. <laughs> so, uh, so, Master Aaron, I thought that was kind of funny. Um, well, friends, invite you to turn to Revelation, and chapter, uh, chapter 6, and then... Um, uh, I'm glad we could kind of laugh about that. That's that's really quite funny. I have, um, as I, we mentioned in our worship service, we are entering the kind of the season of Advent, the season of anticipation of Christ's coming. Um, we we it's kind of both. We celebrate and we mark the fact that Jesus did come as as Emmanuel, God with us. Uh, but Jesus also said that He was coming again, and so we kind of mark both. Uh, when we celebrate Advent, we, in, we celebrate him, that he came and we anticipate his coming again in the same way that uh, the saints of old were anticipating the coming of Messiah. And so uh, it's really appropriate then that we are staying with our series in Revelation because uh, this deals with Christ and his coming again. And so we're really... Um, Kind of, it's really appropriate how we're actually going through some of these passages in Revelation as kind of our Advent time. Uh, normally, wouldn't think of Revelation series and Revelation as being Advent time uh, with beasts and dragons and prostitutes and all those sorts of things, but it actually seems very appropriate, really. Um, but a little, a little disclaimer: um, I, I really uh, love and enjoy digging into the scriptures, studying the scriptures, studying to see what they would have to say, um, and um, do a lot of work in them and a lot of prayer and reading like commentaries and resources from, from all over. And I love the feeling um, that uh, I'm confident in the scriptures because they're the word of God and so that they will speak. And then I love the feeling when on Saturday night, sometimes really late or Sunday morning, when I feel like it all kind of comes together and I'm confident about what I'm going to present. Today's not one of those Sundays. <laughs> I mean, the first part is true. Uh, I am confident that this is God's word, uh, but we're coming to a part of Revelation that's really just tricky. And it's weird and it's kind of uh, mystified people for millennia. And I, I feel as though um, the, and I think I've been reading from in and out of like, maybe 10 different commentaries. Uh, and I find that uh, just when I think I might know something, then I read another commentary and I go, oh, that's different. Uh, that's a different perspective. And so my, my view on Revelation has, has changed and evolved over the years since I've been a Christian. Um, and so, uh, so sometimes I just don't feel that confident. So I'm just saying that out front to, to you, that I'm like, I don't feel confident uh, in this message, that's a terrible way to begin a message, really. Um, but I'm confident in God and I'm confident in his word. And so I will at least share with you uh, what uh, some thoughts that I have from this this passage this morning. And um, before we do, I would like to uh, to pray. So let's pray together. Father God, this is uh, your word. And it is your power, power for salvation. It is um, powerful to, to create a, a work in us to cause us to do and to live and to think and to be the way you would call your people to be in this world. And so, God, we thank you for your word that you've given us. And uh, God, uh, with, with humility, I, I come to offer um, your words and um, some reflections that I have to tie them together. And uh, God, I ask your, your blessing upon them um, and uh, your blessing upon your people who, to, who hear uh, these words. And so uh, we ask your help and your assistance because we deeply and desperately need it. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, about the middle of the first century... Um, Right around the early 60s, maybe 64 A.D., 
um, a fire broke out in the capital of the Roman Empire, Rome. Uh, it was a pretty devastating fire, uh, historians tell us. Uh, some of the speculation in the debate at the time was that the emperor at the time, Nero, actually kind of started the fire. Um, one historian I read said that he was in the middle of kind of advocating some building programs in uh, Rome, and it was pretty convenient because some of the places that he wanted to build, this is where the fire had devastated and wiped out that area, and all of a sudden now it became prime real estate. Um, and so some, there was some speculation that, that Herod had done this. Um, but it seems as though maybe Herod uh, wanted to kind of divert attention away from himself and actually blamed the massive fire that caused the destruction in uh, the city of Rome. He actually blamed it on this upstart new religious movement called Christians. He blamed it on the Christians. And um, this whatever kind of campaign he used to kind of get that information out, it really started to gain some traction. And people started to believe that the Christians were responsible for uh, this fire. It kind of started this rumor, and it ended up spreading. And so you thought, like, hashtag fake news is a new thing. This has been around for a long time. And uh, there had always been persecution in the church, uh, even in the early days, from the religious leaders in Jerusalem, uh, there was always persecution against this Christian religious movement. But now, now with this event that has happened with the fire in Rome, there was an outbreak of persecution against Christians that lasted for years. And now it seemed like it was um, starting to spread. Uh, it was now open season on Christians in the Roman Empire. And, uh, and this was not a localized thing. It was not a kind of a regional thing. This is kind of seemed like this was the capital of the government down. Widespread view uh, against Christians that started right in the middle 60s. Um, and so, uh, so there, it seemed as though, in a lot of people's minds, it seemed as though that this, uh, this movement, this Jesus movement, uh, was, was starting to experience some setbacks. Was starting felt like it was losing and they believed the christians believed that jesus was lord and caesar was not that jesus was the sovereign ruler over all things and that the neros uh, or the tituses or the domitians were not despite what those leaders would have to say but in the midst of all of this kind of widespread persecution it did raise some questions raise some questions like, why do Christians, are, why are they experiencing these sorts of tribulations? Does God see the evil that is perpetrated on Christians? Does he see injustice? And if he does see, why doesn't he do anything about it? I think that the visions in Revelation that we start to see now from Revelation chapter 6 all the way through 22 are kind of addressing by and large, those sorts of questions. And so let me recap a little of where we are in uh, Revelation. In John chapter 1, excuse me, Revelation chapter 1, John uh, is on the island of Patmos. He's exiled and he sees a vision of the resurrected Jesus. And in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus has a message to give to seven churches that were on the western portion of Asia Minor, off the, the coast the coast off of which John was exiled. And then after the, uh, those messages to those seven churches, in chapter 4 and 5, John is now taken up into the heavenly throne room and he gets to see the one seated on the throne. Gets to see a depiction of God on his throne. And in chapter 5, he sees a lamb. The one seated on the throne has this scroll in his hand. A call goes out. Who is worthy to open the scroll? John weeps because nobody is that he can see. And then one of the elders says, wait, hold on, don't cry. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he sees the lamb that looked as though he was slain, or a lamb as slain. And he was worthy to open the scroll. And then heaven breaks out in this massive worship at the end of chapter 5. Chapter 6 
through 22 has a vision of God's plan that he wants to convey to this church in these churches and through John. And in chapter 6 and 7, you have the opening of those seals on that scroll. The breaking of those seals. And this is the first of several visions that uh, we see throughout Revelation. Now, um, if you're familiar with Revelation, and if you kind of are looking through and you're reading the headings there, you can kind of see there's a pattern of sevens. In chapter 6 and 7, there's the pattern of the seven seals on this scroll that are being broken. And then there's kind of a little, uh, a little short interlude at the end of that. And then there's the breaking of the seventh seal. And then there's seven trumpets. And then there's another interlude. And then you have seven bowls of wrath. Uh, excuse me. And then there's seven uh, stories, symbolic histories. And then you have seven bowls being poured out. And then it kind of ends in, with the climax of this final battle. It's uh, important for us to ask this question. This morning, what is the relationship of all of those visions? Now, there's basically two schools of thought on the relationships of all of those visions. The first school of thought we'll call uh, what I'm calling the sequence uh, perspective. So meaning what you're reading from 6 through 22 is happening kind of linearly in a sequence. So uh, these Seven scrolls happen first, and at the end of those seven scrolls, then you have the, the next segment, and then the next segment, and the next segment. So there's a sequence, or that these are, are to be seen as chronological, in a chronological order, and that all of these will take place in the future. Okay, This is one perspective of how to answer this question. How do you view all of these visions? How do you, what's the relationship of all of them? And it's a very popular, very popular view. Um, for me, uh, I, I'm starting to see that the relationship of all of these visions are, are less like one right after another chronologically, and that they are more like a stack. So less of a sequence than they are a stack. And so you have this picture of the seven seals, and then it's like John gets a new vision. And then I saw, it's kind of like, you could think that, well, then, meaning that happened next. But it's then I saw, and then it's like a new vision starts to happen with new symbols and new images and those sorts of things. This is the one that uh, I, I, that I'm not saying one is wrong and one is, you know, one is correct and one is false. I'm, I'm not saying that at all. Uh, you might uh, maybe favor the first view. Um, but I'm starting to see... Uh, the sequence uh, of these events being seen as like a stack. So instead of telling uh, multiple different stories in a sequence, this is telling the same story and saying it over and over again. So each vision is kind of a stack of the same event. Does that, does that make sense? And if you could disagree with me, that's, that's totally fine. Uh, you're totally, despite what Sam says, I'm not the master, okay? <laughs> So you can disagree, but the way that we will be proceeding through Revelation, I will be proceeding through Revelation with this kind of perspective, that what John is seeing is one vision being told in multiple ways with interludes in between. And this is not new for me. I mean, there's scholars uh, are on both sides of, of this perspective. And then in each one of these, there is a discernible pattern. There's, there's a pattern that you see. And let me kind of give you the elements of the pattern. First, there's the scene, the setting. So if you think of like, you know, a, um, a script for a movie or for a play, scene. And then you have some agents who are issuing these kind of judgments that are going out. So the first thing is you have scene with agents, right? Uh, agents of judgment. Then you have this sevenfold depiction. Okay, seven being a significant number in Revelation. Uh, so there's a sevenfold de depiction, and the um, first five or six are kind of given pretty quick in order. And then you have a, a, a bigger description or kind of a pause in there. And in that pause, you have a, a response of the unrepentant to these visions. You have a promise for saints. And then you have with the last 
seventh element, sixth or seventh element, you have a description of the second coming of Christ. And this is a pattern. And as we go through this, this is a pattern you will see that's in each one of these scenes. And then it culminates with a, a worship of salvation, of a there's crowning king reigning imagery, and then a reward for the saved imagery after the coming of Christ and a whole bunch of pictures of, of destruction and judgment. Okay, so that's the sequence. Scene of agents, uh, most of a sevenfold depiction of the unveiling of these judgments. There's a response in some way of the unrepentant, but there's a promise given to saints. And then there's a depiction of the second coming of Christ with all of the cosmic devastation that comes along with it. And then you have uh, worship and crowning and reward for the saved. This repeats over and over again, which is why I think you start, you'll, you'll see this kind of gives some evidence to the stacking um, thing. And so um, we are now in the first cycle of those. So this morning, we're going to be just looking at just the first cycle. And that is the seven seals. And so let me give you the four parts uh, of this first cycle. The first part is the first four seals being broken. The second part is the fifth and the sixth seal being broken. And then you have this interlude in between that talks about the, the protection of the saints and then you have, uh, it ends with the great multitude. And so our, our scripture reading will be throughout. We'll do this in parts. And so here is our scripture reading. Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 through 8 is the first part. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say, with a voice like thunder, come. And I looked and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. That's the first seal. Verse three. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. That's the second seal. Third seal. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. Verse 7, the fourth seal. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, and with famine, and with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. So here are the first four seals and each of these four seals have four horsemen four riders on four different colored horses the white one signifying warfare is given a bow he was given a crown meaning he was victorious in this warfare and that he was out to conquer and to conquer then you have the red horse which signifies slaughter and bloodshed and violence he was given a great sword people were slaying one another so perhaps the red of the horse conveys the red of the bloodshed. Then you have a black horse, which signifies the economic hardship and famine. He's given a pair of scales, which is what they would use to measure. And then you have this description here, a quart of wheat for a denarius. A denarius in that time would have been a, a, a common average laborer's full day's work, that full day of pay. That would be a day of wages for a common laborer. And then if you go a quart of wheat, um, and that, that would give you maybe a meal or two, right? If you think of a quart of wheat and you add water to it, and how much bread would you be able to make with that? Maybe two loaves, right? And then, uh, then barley is kind of a poorer version. 
uh, and that would be the poorer people would have barley, and he would say, you get three quarts of barley for a day's wages. So in other words, you're working, working all day, and you're ba- barely able to get enough sustenance that you need. So a little economic hardship and famine. And then with the fourth horse, the pale horse, horse you have death and Hades or the grave and famine and pestilence and beasts. So you're starting to see this kind of uh, judgments that were going out onto, onto humanity here. Now, a little, little side note. Some, some interpreters see this first horse on uh, the first rider on this first horse as representing Jesus. They do this because in chapter 19, verse 11, uh, at the final battle when Jesus is victorious, he's riding on a white horse. And they go, oh, rider on white horse, rider on the white horse. It's the same person. Uh, I don't think so, although some some people think that that's the case. There seems to be that these are kind of like supernatural kind of beings overcharged of these unveiling of these kind of disruptive uh, things affecting humanity. And then if you read uh, in Zechariah chapter 1, Zechariah chapter 6, and I wish I had time we could look at those, those four horses are also given as vehicles or instruments of implementing God's judgment on the nations. And so it's kind of hard to pull out one of these and say, well, this one's Jesus, but the other three guys are bad. I think you need to see these as a whole. All four of these are bad. And so here you have then the first of the four, uh, four scrolls, or four seals opened. And um, the question then becomes that I think is helpful for us to see in this first part of our reflection is who gave the writers these authority to do these things? I think the answer is Jesus the Lamb. Jesus is the one who's given them the authority to do these things. He's the one who is worthy to open the, the seals. And he is the, the one um, that's behind the tribulations that come upon humanity. Okay? Now, the writers, they're the ones that are executing this. But uh, the tribulations that are coming, this is not happening outside of Jesus' notice. Or these are not coming outside of Jesus' plan. These supernatural figures are given various elements of authority. Notice that. Did you notice that in verse two? He was uh, a crown was given to him to conquer. Verse four, the writer was permitted and he was given a great sword. Notice verse eight. They were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill. These are what are called divine passives. There's no subject mentioned. And so when you have uh, this no subject mention and you have this given, these massive things given to them, the idea is that this is given by God. He's orchestrating these these events. Okay? So these hardships, this first thing we need to catch, these hardships and these tribulations are used by God on the world. And I think that there's two purposes for why they're poured out. One is to chasten the unrepentant. To cause them to repent, hopefully, and to purify the saints, to persevere. Okay, we're going to get more on this in in just a moment. So that's the first part of this vision. The first four seals, kind of right, you know, one right after another. Now we get to the fifth seal and the sixth seal. And these take a little bit more. uh, There's a little bit more of a description for each one. Verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. These are martyred believers. No horse, no rider. Scene completely shifts somewhere else to under the altar. And he sees the slain, the souls of those who were slain for the word of God and for their witness. And they shout basically, are shouting to God, verse 10. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long? And have you ever been into an experience like that, where you've cried out to God, God, how long? 
How many of you known a family member who's had a long-term uh, serious illness? How long? How many of you had uh, known people who've had massive devastation in their families, loss of jobs, often, and you, the cry is, Lord, how long? They're crying out, Lord, when are you going to come and avenge us? When are you going to come and judge those who are perpetrating this wickedness on us? And notice the way that they address Jesus. Oh, sovereign Lord, sovereign Lord. The answer to their appeal is given in verse 11. Then they were each given a white robe. Now remember, white robe, this is the picture of victory and purity and they're given this white robe that he's promised. That he's promised to those who overcome. Remember that to one of the churches that they were promised that they would be given a white robe. And so they're given a white robe. They're told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be a complete. What's this number? Those who were to be killed as they themselves had been. The sovereign Lord knows that violence is going to be committed against his people. He knows. A couple of things to keep in mind here. Christians are not exempt from this sort of tribulation. They're not exempt. There's, there's some views of Revelation that see that something like kind of happened. All the believers kind of disappear. And Revelation is dealing with like the aftermath of what ha happens afterward. Here you have the saints who are being martyred here in the midst of these kind of tri tribulations after the seals have been broken. And they're crying out, why won't you redeem? Why won't you avenge our blood? And he's, his answer is there's still more blood of Christians to be shed. So Christians are there. They're a part of this tribulation. And that brings us to kind of the second related point to this. Christian suffering is a part of God's plan. Suffering is a mark of the Christian life. Suffering is a mark of the Christian life. Let me just read, if you would, you would like to turn, you can. 1 Peter chapter 4. Romans chapter 8. Suffering is a mark of the Christian life. This is what Peter writes to this church. And if you notice in the ESV, the heading there, it says suffering as a Christian. Peter writes, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial about with, uh, excuse me, at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. To test you as though something strange were happening. Fiery trials of testing and suffering uh, is normative. If you're, in, you can put it this way, if you're not experiencing these kinds of fiery trials, that's unusual. As though something strange were happening to you. There's nothing strange about this at all, he says. Verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a, as a meddler. So what he wants to be clear about, hey, there's some kind of suffering in this world that you deserve. And if you commit, if you break the laws of God, yes, you're suffering. That's, that's, not, that's not a sign of God's blessing. But if you don't do those things and you still are persecuted, he says that that is part of the Christian life. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian... Notice the difference. Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will become of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteousness is 
Scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Notice how this widespread suffering that Peter's writing about, it's part of our world and part of our life. And it will happen to you as Christians. And that this comes, this will come upon us as the household of God. He says that if it's going to come upon us who turn to him in faith and know that he is going to avenge us in his time, what's it going to be like for those who, who don't? I think what Peter is describing here is a little bit of what you see in the unbreaking of these, these seals thus far. That Christians will suffer. Now, Romans, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is a wonderful chapter. You know, the word spirit occurs several dozen times in Romans chapter 8. Wonderful chapter on the spirit that now dwells within us and the future glory that we have. It, it's just fantastic chapter to read. Notice in verse 14, Paul writes, For all of us who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption. This is through faith in Christ. And then we have faith in Christ. The Spirit then is given to us as a seal or deposit, right? Paul writes elsewhere. And here he says, you've been given the spirit of adoption as sons. Wow, we're in his family. Then we are able to say, by whom we say, we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Wonderful. And if children, then heirs. Wow, we get the inheritance. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We get to share the inheritance with him. Wonderful. What is this? Provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. You don't get to glory without going through suffering. Heirs of being children, provided you suffer, because you have to suffer to get to glory. And how do we know that? Because Christ suffered before he got to glory. Christ suffered on that cross. Beaten, nailed to a cross, Not for his sins, for yours. Yet God raised him from the dead, brought him up into heaven, seated him at the right hand of the majesty, and is now here breaking open the seals of judgment. He suffered and now goes to glory. That's the message for us as Christians. We suffer before we get to glory. Love that verse in in Acts 14. Where Paul and uh, his whole companions were going around and they planted churches and they were going back to the churches and they were strengthening in the Lord and they were encouraging their hearts. And and how did they encourage their hearts and how did they strengthen the Lord? They said at, at reminding them that through many tribulations, they must enter the kingdom of God. (laughs) Encouraging. (laughs) That's strengthening my heart. It, it, It is. It is. That's the message. That is the message. Jesus suffered that you might be saved. But Jesus may not save you from suffering. Jesus suffered that you might be saved. But Jesus doesn't save you from suffering. Suffering and trials and tribulations are part of the Christian life. And I believe that what we see here in Revelation chapter 6 is not a depiction of something that will happen in the future. It's a part of what's happening in the present church age here and now. And so that's the key to this, we call call this fifth seal living. Living in this fifth seal is to remember That Jesus suffered that he might save you, but he doesn't save you. He may not save you from suffering. And then notice the sixth seal is open. And when he opened, verse 12, the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Okay, just 
Kind of pause for a second and notice the depiction of what's happening here. If you've read through your Old Testament, especially the prophets, especially the minor prophets, later, at the later ends of the, the Old Testament, you will see this, these kind of events that are describing when the Lord will return. They call it the day of the Lord. Or they sometimes just call it that day. Or the day. The day when he will come back. Oh, I wish we had time to dig into to all of these. Isaiah 13, Jeremiah 47, Ezekiel 13, Joel. Read book, the book of Joel. Joel has a, a lot of depictions of the day of the Lord. Amos 5, Zephaniah. There's, there's all of them talk about this day of the Lord. And let me give you a little bit of characteristics of this day. This is when the Lord God, Yahweh, will climactically intervene into history and punish sin and there would be precursors like earthly kind of invasions natural disasters those sorts of things are all de depicted in these prophets there'll be physical uh, effects on nature um, and during this time those who are truly believers will repent and to be saved those who remain as enemies of the lord whether they be jews or gentiles and refuse to repent, they will be punished. All of this is kind of depicted as this day. And when they describe that day, when he comes, they use language like earthquake, sun is black, blood to uh, moon to blood, the stars falling from the sky. The, the heavens, the sky vanishing like a scroll being rolled up. Every mountain and island removed from its place. This is cosmic, cataclysmic kind of disaster sorts of things. Friends, this, at, at least to me, this is describing the second coming of Christ. It's the first of many. This is why I think this, if we think, don't think sequence, think stacking. Okay, think the next story is going to kind of come with a description very similar to this. The next one's going to come with a description very similar to this. So remember, think think stack, not sequence. Okay. Don't think uh, think cyclical, not chronological. And so this is a depiction of the second coming. Yes, the second com coming. And so, uh, so here you have, uh, and by the way, this day of the Lord is equated with Jesus in the New Testament, several places. Um, and, and maybe it will, just for sake of time, I, I'll put these scripture references in like maybe a little handout or send it out in a P PDF of the church, uh, church email so that you could look these up and study them for yourselves. It's a fascinating study. Um, but they, the New Testament writers will refer to the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what the prophets talked about is the day of the Lord. This is referring to the Lord's second coming. And then notice what happens in verses 15 and 17. Okay, so you have the second coming and then you have the response. How do the unrepentant respond? Notice 15, and 15 through 17. And the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free. By the way, uh, I didn't notice this until I read a commentary that that's actually it's every slave and free it kind of should be that, which means there's seven. So, again, you have this this repetition of the use of seven kings, great ones, generals, rich, powerful, every slave, every free. So seven. That's a little interesting fact. He says all of them slave and free. So meaning the kind of the full completion of humanity, then the rest of humanity is saying they're hiding themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of the, their wrath has come and who can stand? This is the second coming. And notice the response of the, the unrepentant. Similar to Adam's and Eve's, right? He's coming and we hide. They tried to hide themselves. And it didn't matter what sort of financial resources you have. There's no way of escape. You can't hide. You can't hide from him on that day. 
The unrepentant would actually rather be crushed under a mountain than to face Jesus. So, friends, if if you don't know Christ, maybe you've been running from him. If you don't know Christ, you can only run so far. You can't hide. You will run into Jesus sooner or later. And it's better that you run to him than into him. It's better that you run into the sovereign Lord and turn to him as savior than to run into him and face the great day of his wrath. So that is the uh, the sixth seal. And then you have this kind of uh, depiction here in the next two, two scenes. And let me summarize. Let me just summarize the next two scenes. Here you have this interlude between six and seven. And this is a, a kind of a word of promise for the whole people of God that despite what's going to happen, despite the tribulations and despite the sufferings, he's going to seal his people. He's going to protect his people. And so this is what you see. And it's kind of a two depiction part and there's there's an emphasis in each one of these parts the first emphasis is on kind of maybe the 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 jewish emphasis of the people of god and the gentile emphasis of the one people of god so this is one depiction but he's emphasizing the two and here's what i mean by that because of the listing of the tribes so here's the the jewish emphasis after this Verse, this is chapter 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds on the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And then John says, and I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then he goes down and lists 12,000 from the tribes, Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. They were all sealed. Now, what does this mean? Uh, There's... Is that a, a literal number? There's some cults who believe that that's actually the only little, literal number of people that will be saved. Uh, you know what? This is kind of how this apocalyptic literature works. Think of something like this. Twelve, this number of completion, like the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles. Twelve times twelve, uh, you know, times ten times ten times ten or whatever, if I got my math right. You know, so think of, think of it like that. That's what this number is supposed to symbolize. And then uh, it's an interesting rearrangement. Ah, we don't have time. If I had time, we would go into the interesting. Why is it ordered this way when in the Old Testament they're ordered in a different way? But just understand this. This is the emphasis here is on the sealing of kind of the old covenant people of God. And then you have this this uh, depiction of that. That's not all that who it is. The people of God is more expansive than that. Because then it goes on in verse 9. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from, let's say that with me, every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages. So this is the universal nature of this. This is, these are, this is the one church of God, the one people of God, Jew and Gentile alike, standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God. So you notice end of this kind of pattern you see, you have this salvation is now come and all the angels are standing around the throne. Here's this reigning of the king, his enthronement around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces in worship before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen and blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in the white robes and from where have they come? 
And John, following uh, the example of Ezekiel, does something really smart here. <laughs> he could answer. He goes, well, you know, right? So <laughs> you know the answer to that. Remember when Ezekiel did that with the dry bones? Can these bones live? And, you know, like if he answers, well, no, they can't because they're dry. But, yeah, but I don't want to presume. So Ezekiel goes, well, you know, John does the same thing here. So, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall know they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb is in the midst of the throne. The lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. That's amen. Anyone else? Amen. Amen. This is the this is the end picture. And I think it's a little micro a little micro image of what we'll see in Revelation 21 and 22 with the new Jerusalem and the new heaven comes down. Uh, it's, it's really hard to see that that's just the beginning of another sequence of things. Rather, this seems to me like this is showing the depiction of God's whole salvation, the whole plan. And I love this. The lamb turns into a shepherd. What crazy little switches of imagery there. And he will guide them and he will wipe every tear from their eye. This is exactly what it says in Revelation chapters 21 and 22. And then when the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. I think that means from John's experience. For him, there was silence before the next vision happens. So friends, Jesus, O sovereign Lord, he has a plan. And that plan for Christians involves suffering. How long, O oh Lord? How long? Wait a little while. I'm going to come back. Wait a little while. I will judge. I will avenge. I will pour these things out. And it's going to be caused to, for your purification, for your perseverance. And hopefully it will also chasten those who still yet to repent and haven't turned to me. Just hang on a little while because I will come and it'll be an earthquake and the sky, the sun will be turned to black, the moon to blood. It will be cataclysmic. The coming, the day of the Lord will come and then you will reign with me forever and ever. That is what I think this vision says to us. That the tribulations that we would experience in this life, and they're going to come. I often think of how, like, well, how can I apply this to, and then I think, what tribulations are people going through? It's nothing this serious. We're, we're, it's pretty comfortable for us here in the West, me included. But we have to prepare ourselves for this to come. I've wondered if sometimes the more fanciful interpretations of Revelation come from a culture that's really, really comfortable. And sees these as future encouragements for the future. When I think of when I'm reading this this last week, I started to try and read this from the perspective as if. I lived in northern Iraq three years ago. Right? This is real. Or as if I lived in China now. This word is real and relevant for us now. And so even though we may not be experiencing this sort of tribulation, yet we need to be prepared for when we do. And when we do, we need to remember these words when we, when we get to that moment where we want to cry out, Oh, sovereign Lord, how long? Know that he's coming. And know that in order for us to get to that glory, we have to follow his path. Jesus suffered before he entered in glory. He suffered that you might be saved. 
But that doesn't mean he will save you from suffering. Let's remember that. Amen? Let's pray together. O sovereign Lord, O lion of the tribe of Judah, O lamb that was slain, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and might and power and strength and blessing. We praise you this morning that even that even you would come to earth to take on human flesh and to suffer before you would get to your glory. God, we, we pray you remind us and drive home this truth, this word of encouragement that we too must suffer. Jesus, enable us, prepare us now for how we will respond in that day. Make us to trust in you. And to encourage us, we thank you that you remind us and give us the vision that you were a lamb as slain. May we follow you in faithfulness all our days to the praise of your glorious grace. We ask in your name and all God's people said, amen and amen. Friends, will you stand for closing benediction? And thank you for hanging in through a very long teaching. Brothers and sisters, now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the fellowship that we have in the Holy Spirit be with all of you as you go.